songs of praise to our Lord. Join me in your Bibles, if you will, to the book of Acts as we continue our series to Acts chapter 2, and I have gotten bogged down. My tires are spinning in the mud. We're going to be stuck for a while, my friends. So go ahead and buckle up and start to enjoy just the depth of the Pentecost narrative. This is arguably one of Peter's best recorded sermons. Uh, Just a mere 50 days or so after his major rejection of Jesus and then subsequent restoration. Remember the charcoal fire before the crucifixion of Christ. Remember how the only person that was able to gather nearby was Peter. He snuck in because he knew somebody. And he was in there in the courtyard. And they had a, a, a charcoal fire And he was there, and they began to listen to him talk, and they noticed his accent. You ain't from around here. You're not from Jerusalem. You're a Galilean. I bet you're one of his disciples. And what does Peter say? Oh, no, that's not me. I'm not a disciple of Jesus. He rejects him three times. We have this rejection occur. And then he runs away and weeps bitterly because the Lord is going through his most agonizing time. And he is rejected by his number one disciple, essentially. And then a few days later, after the resurrection, Jesus brings them in, and there's another charcoal fire. And at that charcoal fire, they're cooking up fish, and Jesus turns to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, well, you know I do, Lord. And they ask him again, do you love me? He says, you know I do, Lord. Third time, he asks him, do you love me? And Peter says, Lord, you know, you know my innermost being. I love you. And he says, feed my sheep. And so we have this restoration of someone who rebelled greatly against the Savior. And then he comes up here and he preaches this magnificent sermon. So Peter's sermon at Pentecost can be broken into three parts. So the first is... Uh, Spirit-filled Christians, 14 through 21. The second part is the central, Jesus is Lord. Right, We crown him with many crowns in, in uh, verses 22 through 36. And then part three is the call to repentance and the crowd's response in 37 through 41. All of which point to the Spirit-empowered preaching of this risen Christ. So our section this morning is going to be part one. So you obviously know there's at least three parts to the sermon, and it may go longer depending on how long I, I go, how, how I wax eloquent, or I just wax. It may melt all over the ground. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, the Holy Spirit, that we can be empowered to preach your message in such a way that it cuts to the heart. Father, we ask that we would not be dull and hard of hearing, that you would penetrate into our heart, that we would rejoice in the risen King, that our our lives would reflect this glorious reality of who Jesus is. Father, help us to stay close to your text, the inspired inspired word of God. Uh, Father, we don't need anything else. This is the sufficient word. So Father, I pray for my preaching that I would be able to communicate what you would have me communicate clearly and succinctly. Father, I pray for our congregation 
that they would be prepared, that their hearts would be ready to receive the word of the living God, the word of the risen Christ. Father, what a glorious reality. Father, be with us and guide us. Lord, I also pray for churches in this area who are lifting up the same song, crown him with many crowns. They are singing about the risen king. And not only are they singing about the risen king, Father, that they are preaching about the risen king uh, through the inspired word. Father, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. So we have four sections. The main body of this magnificent sermon by Peter is a quote from Joel chapter 2, 28 through 32. And what we could maybe succinctly give a sentence to help understand what is going on here, I would say that the Holy Spirit, empowered preaching of Christ, does these things. It draws attention, it fulfills prophecy, and then it points to signs and wonders, and finally it compels a response. This is what the Holy Spirit-empowered preaching of Christ does. And the first thing it does is it draws attention. Look at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 2. You know what I'm going to do? Let's go ahead and just read Peter's first part of his sermon. So 14 says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And it will be in the last days, of, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. And then your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the, heavens above, in the heaven above and signs on the earth below. Blood and fire, a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes on and he continues to preach. And we're going to stop there because we got we got to slow down. That was a lot of information, Peter. And so first we have this introduction. So Peter stands up with the 11 and he raises his voice to gather everyone gather everyone's attention. And this is standard rhetorical techniques of of Hebrews. So he gets everyone's attention on himself. So remember the scenario. Remember the setting. The Holy Spirit has come. It has uh, empowered everyone in the 120 disciples of Jesus, give or take, to go out. And they begin to speak in all these different languages. It's mass chaos. Thousands of people gather to hear what is going on from the sound. And what happens? Then people begin to either be skeptical or amazed. right? And the skeptics say, oh, they're probably drunk. And the people that are amazed are like, what is happening? Nothing like this is going has ever happened. People are speaking in our own native languages. Peter, however, gets their attention. He stands up, as he typically does, because he's a little bit bold sometimes, maybe to his detriment. And he stands up and he gets their attention because he has an important message from the king. 
The word for proclaimed is used in verse 4 for the Spirit's giving of utterance. And then Peter, Peter's, Peter's, Peter's speech is a work of the Spirit. So in, in verse 4 of this, the Spirit enables the proclamation of the word. Peter, of course, begins with pointing to the event and dispelling lingering thoughts about the reason for the commotion. In fact, it's kind of sarcastic the way he starts. He uses a little bit of sarcasm saying, these people aren't drunk. It's not even meal time yet. And you know we don't get drunk before a meal. We get drunk at the meal, right? He's kind of making a little joke. So the occasion of pouring out has drawn the crowd, enabling Peter to proclaim Jesus to fellow Jews. As Peter calls attention to what he is about to say, we too must pay attention to his words. Now consider the words of Peter. I want you to, to meditate on them. Don't, don't skim them, but drink deeply. He says in verse 14, he stood up, he proclaimed to them, fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let this be known to you. Pay attention. When you come to the preaching of the word, what do you come for? Are you just checking a, a Christianized box? Well, I'm a Christian, so I got to go to church. That's what I got to do. Or are you preparing your heart? Are you preparing your heart to hear the word of the living Lord? Are you coming prepared to hear what God's word has to say? Are you paying attention? Are you giving forethought? Or are you so distracted by all of your troubles and your worries? Are you thinking about, man, I, I hope I have enough time to get my roast done, right? Have you have a roast in the oven and you set it on a timer? Or maybe you're thinking about, okay, what does tomorrow look like? I got to get the kids ready for school. I got to think, right? We're thinking about other things. In fact, even when you enter into the sanctuary, you start to have conversations and you say, oh man, that guy says something really strange to me. And you begin to dwell. Have you gotten distracted from the main reason to be here? I know that my tendency is to distraction. My tendency is not to pay attention to what the Word of God says. Am I going to be like that parable of the hearers when the troubles choke out the Word? Or am I going to be like the birds that, that snatch away the Word from my mind because I'm not focusing on paying attention? And so as, as Peter draws everyone's attention, he says, Listen! He says, let this be known. Pay attention to my words. Pay attention. Focus. We live in a highly distracted age. It's hard to pay attention. I get it. It's work. Hard work is hard work. We must work to pay attention. Verse 15, he goes on and he says, these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. And we know, based on Jewish custom, the day after a big festival or the day of big festivals, they typically wouldn't eat till later in the day. And they wouldn't really drink alcohol of any kind until they had eaten, right? Because their goal wasn't to party. It was just to, because um, the water was typically not as sanitary as it is today. And so um, wine was, was served with meals in order to help sanitize. 
And so he's, he's saying, there's no way we're drunk. It's nine in the morning. Nobody gets drunk at, in the morning. Everyone gets drunk at night, right? Peter is, is kind of making a little joke about their presuppositions. But then he draws their attention to Scripture. And this is, this is what I love about this sermon. It is very heavily based on Scripture. It is a, essentially an expository sermon that Peter is proclaiming here. And he almost verbatim quotes Joel chapter 2. And so the Spirit fulfills prophecy. Peter's preaching is the fulfillment of prophecy, as well as proclaiming what had happened was the fulfillment of prophecy. Joel chapter 2.28 is essentially quoted from the Septuagint minus a few words. Peter adds some words here. So if you have something like the NASB or the CSB, you will have in your text bolded letters or capital letters. The NASB does a bold or capitals and the CSB does bold. And as you look at that, you will see that there are some areas that are dark bold and some that are regular font if you have a CSB with you. And what that shows you is that these are verbatim quotes versus what is not verbatim from the text. And we're going to look at some of these as we move forward. Though what's fascinating to me is the way that Peter uses the passage from Joel. Now, obviously, Peter is steeped in Scripture. He can pull this from his own memory as he is guided by the Holy Spirit. And he proclaims this passage has found fulfillment in this current event. So notice how he explains what happened with Scripture, making Scripture the authority, not his personal experience. This is really important. The Holy Spirit has come in on these folks, and instead of becoming like um, people in history who just run off and say, the Lord gave me a special word, and then they blurt out whatever came to their mind, Peter says, let me tell you about the word of the living God that has been fulfilled in this place. Right? It's always based on Scripture. He says, this Scripture has found fulfillment. He doesn't say, I had a special experience, let me tell you what just happened. He says, this is a fulfillment of the word of the living God. This is so important to our Christian lives because we can get led astray by every philosophy that comes in to this world, guys. There are prophets today that say these weird things. I get emails from them all the time. And, it, and sometimes they even apologize for getting it wrong. And I start trying to pick up my stones to stone them like we're called to do in the Old Testament. And they don't like that. If you have one wrong prophecy, you're not a prophet. You're supposed to never preach again. Anyways, I get distracted. We must focus on the Word. What does the Word say? So it's fascinating, of course, where the words are changed. Um, so I, I just explained that. So here, we want to understand the original quotation. What was going on in Joel? So Joel, the prophet, is prophesying about um, after this major locust plague that has gone through the land. The people of Israel have been devastated by plagues. And the immediate context of this passage that we read is that it was a comfort for the people that at some future point, God would pour out His Spirit and a judgment on the nation. Yet Peter changes the words of the prophecy slightly and adds these words. Listen to what he adds. In 
the last days. Why would Peter do that? The reason I think he does this is to show that the last days are marked by the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Isaiah 32.15 talks about it. Ezekiel 34-37 through says the last days are marked by a pouring out of the Holy Spirit. Jeremiah 31.31-33 through says this, um, Look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. This one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on that on the day I took them by the hand to lead them from the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, even though I am their master, the Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, the Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is what Peter is pointing to. He said, this has happened, that the Lord is with his people now. He doesn't have to live in a temple made by human hands. He lives in the heart of his people. And so our passage then explains that the Spirit will pour out on all people. Literally, it says all flesh, not just a special few. Look at this. Verse 17, and it will be in the last day. So it will be is what was in Joel. But then he adds, in the last days, says God. Then he goes back to Joel and says that I will pour out my spirit on all people. He's like, this is fulfilled right now. It is being poured out on all flesh. You don't, it's not a Jew or a Gentile thing. It doesn't, it's not a young man, old man thing. It's not a prophet, priest, or king only thing. He said it will be on all people. It won't be on your gender, right? It's not only going to fall out on men. It's going to fall out on women as well. Not only is it going to be um, based on age, it will be on all ages. It's going to be on all classes, uh, servants and masters, not just one type of people, not just the educated or the uneducated. This is so hope-giving, isn't it? that we don't have to worry about being a particular class or a particular color or ethnicity or gender to have the Holy Spirit within us. It's poured out on all people. Praise God. This should make us celebrate because if we were living in the Old Testament mindset, who typically does the Holy Spirit fall out on? Prophets, priests, and kings. Those are the typical people that the Holy Spirit falls out on. So if you're not a prophet, priest, or king, man, you're out of luck. You're out of providence. You've got to listen to what they say. In fact, I've been reading through 1 Kings, and that's, man, those are some interesting stories. Those guys have some problems. And as I've been reading through my, my, the 1 Kings, I'm thinking, what is going on with these kings? They're lost in the sauce. In fact, they were going and they were sitting there. They were asking, okay, we need to go to war. Let's ask the prophets. He said, okay, here's 400 prophets. Let's ask them. They all prophesied the same thing. And they said, well, isn't there one that speaks for the Lord? Let's go find him. He's like, I don't want to talk to that guy because he always says bad things about me. He's like, okay, let's go get him. So they go get him. The guy says, yeah, you're going to die. The end. Right? And, and so there's special people in the Old Testament that have the Holy Spirit. But this is not what we see now in the New Testament. So I think we can draw two important truths from this doctrine. First, 
We should always measure our experience by Scripture. We should never use our experience to determine what Scripture means. We should always use Scripture to determine our experience. Peter doesn't argue experientially or emotionally, but by expositing Scripture and applying it. I mean, think about this. How often do, our, do we say, ask this question, what does this Scripture mean to me? That's a fallacious question. I don't care what it means to me. What does it mean? It has a meaning. Now, how does it apply to me? How can I take that experience from the Word and say, I'm feeling sad. Why do I feel sad? Well, Scripture says it's because we are all part of fallen humanity and live in a fallen, broken world. Not that God doesn't love me. It's because that's the normal. In fact, joy is unusual. It's a fruit of the Spirit. Anyways, I'm about to start counseling. Verse 2, the second thing, I mean not verse 2, second thing we learn, the second doctrine, is that all flesh, all categories of God's people will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Not a special group, not some with secret knowledge, not some who are more holy than others. Everybody. This is the, the one instance where I think we could say all means all. It fits nicely with the expectation that Israel should be a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19, 5-6 says, Now if you will carefully listen to me and keep my covenant, you will be my own possession out of all the peoples, although the whole earth is mine. And you will be my kingdom of priests and my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. Think about that. The, the, the Israelites were to be a kingdom of priests who kept the covenant. That was the, the role they were to have. They were to be priests to the world. But then in Revelation 1.6, John says the church is to be the kingdom, is to be a kingdom of priests. Revelation 1.6 says, And he made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So as John is writing to all these Gentile churches and talking, says the church is to be a kingdom of priests. And we know how Acts progresses the Gentiles that will be grafted into the people of God. Colossians 1.13 says, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom that, uh, of the Son He loves. It's a current reality that we have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son that He loves. If you are saved, you are a member of these kingdom of priests. You are filled with the Holy Spirit. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the One who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Think about that for a minute. Peter is once again quoting the Old Testament, but he's applying it to a broader category. He has brought the Gentiles into it. The church is to be a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. What does that mean? Well, first it means that we are called from darkness to the marvelous light, that we belong to this kingdom. Think about that. Does that change how you see your 
role in the world? Does that, does that change how you interact with lost family members? Does that change how you interact with the own sin in your life? It should. It should impact it greatly. So why is the fulfillment of this prophecy important, you may be asking yourself. Well, the promise of the Holy Spirit applies to us today. Today. Not tomorrow, not next week, not in a hundred years, a thousand years, two thousand years. But today, we are indwelt, if you are a believer, with the Holy Spirit. We are enabled by the Holy Spirit to pursue holiness. Right? We are to be a holy people. That doesn't mean that, that we are automatically the same thing as our position. We have been adopted into the family, but we don't yet live up to the family name. You know, this is so exciting to me because this is how people change. If you ever have counseled someone, if you ever try to change on your own, I think you will realize how hard it is to change, right? I mean, some of y'all have been trying to do the same diet for months, and I just ate a bunch of popcorn that broke the diet that I was supposed to be on, right? It's hard to change. We can't even change our physical appearance consistently, much less our heart. Have you ever tried to deal with your anger on your own strength? All right, count to 20. Count to 100 before you respond. One, two, three, you know, and you're just chewing on your, your teeth. Or you're, you're cussing. Have you ever tried to stop cussing? Man. But we have the Holy Spirit that enables change. We have the Holy Spirit that begins a good work in us so that on the day of Christ Jesus, he will carry it on to completion, as for as Philippians 1 6 says. With Christ, we can say that we know he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You can change. You don't have to stay stagnant if the Holy Spirit reigns inside of you. But if He doesn't, that means you're not a believer. Third, the Spirit points to signs and wonders. Verses 19 through 20 is really kind of confusing. 19 through... You know what? I'm going to go back really quick because I don't want to miss this. Some people will take what is being said in 17 and 18 to say, look, this is going to be manifested forever in the same way all the time, etc. When it says prophesy here and dream dreams here and, um, and all that, that means that everybody has equal jobs in the church, right? It means that everybody should be the same in the church. That's not what this is saying. It's saying that unlike the Old Testament, new covenant members are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and have an obligation to follow the Lord in His Word. And to do that means that we will know our God. But that doesn't mean that the roles have changed. That doesn't mean that God has not ordained structure a certain way. That doesn't mean that all distinctions are erased. It just means that we are going back to a pre-fall configuration. 
in many ways, men and women complementing each other, providing the support that is needed uh, in the Word. And so don't, don't think that this is a great proof text for women preachers, because it's terrible. In fact, it's the worst one you could choose. Choose a better one, okay? Just before I go any further. Um, but it does say that the Spirit will be on all of us, which means we also need to do our diligence. And it says, and they will prophesy. And we see that. We see sons and daughters prophesying in, in the book of Acts. But we don't see women preaching to congregations in the book of Acts. So there's a reason why it is the way that it is. 19 through 20, we have the, the signs and wonders. Now, this is a seemingly odd transition to me. Um, and in fact, a lot of you who love end times theology type stuff and spend a lot of time uh, looking at charts, etc., begin to try to plot out the structure of this. And, I, and we're going to read it very quickly because I'm already running low on time. We don't want to turn this into part 15. Verse 19, I will display wonders in the heaven. Now, that's directly quoting from Joel. And then he writes, above. He adds that. Peter adds above. And then we see, and signs on the earth. And then Peter adds, below. And then blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. So some think that this means that this points to a separate separate time or event, uh, making uh, or meeting with the already not yet theme of Acts. Right? There's an already not theme already flowing through the book of Acts. Right? We've already achieved this. The kingdom has already come, but it's not yet fully consummated in the same way. Right? The already not yet concept. Um, Jesus has come but he hasn't come to rule as they believed a lot of the Old Testament prophets believed was going to happen, but he will come a second time. So there's an already not yet. So some claim that this will point to a fulfillment now and then a later fulfillment. And I don't think we have to go that far because I think we know that his history is cyclical and that has an eternal purpose. And, and so the language that is used here with Paul's slight modification of above and below form a type of chiasm, which is just a fancy way of saying there's a pattern. So look at this pattern with me. It says that in verse 19, I will display wonder, uh, display wonders in heaven above and signs on earth below. And then it explains the below. Blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. And then it goes back to the above. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon will be uh, to blood before the great and glorious day uh, the Lord comes. So do you see the pattern here? We have A, B, B, A is the fancy way of explaining it. I know that doesn't make a lot of sense from a verbal perspective. But if you looked at it on a, on a piece of paper, you broke it down, you would see that the first part, I will display wonders in the heavens above, is A. And then B, the signs on the earth below, which is the blood, the fire, and a smoke, cloud of smoke, and then A, again, is the sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood. And we have this pattern. So we have the signs below, such as blood and fire. And if you think about it, blood from the cross, fire from the Spirit, the cloud of smoke is often seen as God's glory resting with His people, 
right? We don't have to allegorize this necessarily, but we can see the level of fulfillment that has already come here. Remember the cloud taking Christ up to God the Father in his ascension. The cloud in the Old Testament represents the presence of God with his people. So we have blood from the cross, we have fire from the coming of the Spirit, and we have the presence of God with his people, the cloud or the smoke. And then above, the sun being darkened at the death of Christ. You guys remember that? The sun was darkened when Christ died. Now this blood moon thing, man, there's some weird books out there about blood moons. I did not read them all. I just want you to know. But an interesting thing happened on AD 69. There was a lunar eclipse on AD 69. And so some um, will speculate that that was indicative of the falling of the temple in AD 70. And that was like a, a foreshadowing of this event that was going to happen. And this was the fulfillment of that prophecy. I don't think we necessarily have to get that crazy because I don't think the Holy Spirit included that at this time in this particular way. But it's something that we could do more research on. But it could be referring to something much further in the future because we have not yet personally experienced it. So the thrust of this is that there was and is signs and wonders happening and people should take note and respond. Have you guys ever heard that poem, uh, Red Sky at Night, Sailor's Delight, Red Sky in Morning, Sailors Take Warning? Right? It's just a way of checking to see if it might possibly rain. Right? So we are looking at signs and wonders to see if it's going to rain. Right? We, and that's what Peter is referring to here. Is, Look, this is the fulfillment of prophecy, which means we have an obligation to respond. And that's what the Spirit does. It compels, it, he compels a response. In verse 21, Peter does this. He says, Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, Peter introduces the required response early, and then he comes back to it near the end. And it's just, if you want to study preaching, man, look at the, the, the apostles preaching. It's really fascinating. So he introduces the required response, but he doesn't drive it home yet because he circles back at the end of his sermon in part three. We're going to see that. So Peter concludes with the prophecy claiming that the Spirit, the Spirit pouring out, should lead us to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. So who is the Lord will be further highlighted, highlighted in his next part because he's about to launch into Jesus as Lord. Right? And he's going to show scripture to point to that. But we should be compelled to call out to Christ as our Savior. The Lord in this passage is Jesus. This is who he's talking about. So the, the, the statement here is everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friends. Call on the name of the Lord. In the book of, of Psalms, as I was reading through this morning, uh, various Psalms, I, I was noticing a theme. And that theme was, I cried out to God. I cried out to the Lord. I cried out to my Savior. I cried out to you to save me. Are you doing that? In your depression, are you crying out to the Lord? In your anger, are you crying out to the Lord? In your 
confusion about who you're supposed to be when you grow up? Are you calling on the name of the Lord? Can you say, help? I cannot help myself. Are you crying out on this day? We see that the Holy Spirit empowers the preaching of Christ. He draws attention. He fulfills prophecy. He points to signs and wonders. And then he finally, He compels a response. Your task today, your response today is, what are you struggling with? What do you need to be saved from? Maybe you aren't a believer. Maybe you do not know this living God. Maybe you've lived your whole life thinking that you're saved and realizing now today, this, this very evening, or almost evening, it will be if I keep preaching, this morning that you are not saved. The solution is to cry out. Nothing in my hands I bring, only to the cross I cling. In your depression, when you feel like you're drowning in sorrow, when life is just hard, do you cry out? In our grief over joy, do we cry out? In your struggle with addictions, do you cry out? When your knees hurt and pop when you wake up in the morning, you're like a Krispy Kreme box filled with milk, do you cry out to the Lord for help? Friends, this is the solution. This has always been the solution. It's never been about, let me pull myself up by my bootstraps. It's never, I've done the best that I can. I do my part, God does His part. That's all garbage. That's all blasphemy. Are you leaning on the cross alone? Are you clinging to Him? Are you crying out to Him? It's, it, are you dependent on Him? Maturity in the Christian life is not getting it all together or having it all together and being perfect. Maturity in the Christian life is your dependence fully on the Lord. Rejecting your own. When I come up to preach, if I came and figured out I had everything together, I would fail. I would fall on my face. I have to walk up these steps and say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. Because He's what empowers the preaching. If I was to come up here and tell a bunch of jokes and, and try to preach to you guys on my own strength, it would fall flat. We might laugh a little bit, but it won't change anything. So the question is, are you receptive to the Holy Spirit? Are you even saved? If you're saved, you have the Holy Spirit. You don't need a special outpouring. We don't need to have a special Holy Roller baptismal service to give you the Holy Spirit. It is inside of you. He is inside of you, living in you. The living Christ is in you. But we can squelch him, can't we? We can suppress, we can reject, we can abuse, we can revile Christ in us. We do that by continuing into our sin. And guys, it's so simple. The humble cry out to God. The proud continue on their path. The way of the fool leads to destruction, the way of the wise to life. It's very simple. So if you are in sin and you are hardening your heart and you are not crying out to the Lord, you are going to be crushed. But if you are humble, if you are hitting the, the ground every time you fall, every time you sin, you get to your knees and you cry out to the living God, he who began a good work in you will carry it on until the day of Christ Jesus. That's the, that's the gospel hope we have. We can change because the Spirit is in us.
It can take someone like Peter who rejected the living God to his face, essentially, in his moment of need. I don't know if any of us have messed up that badly. And we can be restored too. Father, as we we turn to a time of response, Lord, we know that you are you are our vision. Lord, we call out to you, we cry out to you, be thou my vision. Father, guide us, keep us, bring us on the way everlasting. Humble our hearts. Help us to cry out to you in our sorrow, to cry out to you in our, in our shame, to cry out to you in our embarrassment. Father, there's no one in this room who has it together. We are all fully dependent on you. We fall on our face day by day by day, uh, Lord, but we know there's hope because we can cry out to you and you are with us. You will not forsake us. Lord, what a, a beautiful gift your spirit is in us to lead us, to guide us, to direct us. Father, help us to not forget these things. Lord, help us to not be distracted by the things of this world. Father, thank you for your mercy to us, your grace upon us. Father, we pray your blessings on these people, that they would go from this place and help to show the light, the kingdom of light that we have been transferred into. Father, if there's anyone in this room, I pray that you would convict them that they need to cry out to you continually, constantly. Father, if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that they would cry out to the Lord. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Father, we pray that we would be a people who call on the name of the Lord and that we will be saved by your promises. We ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and the power of the Spirit. Amen.